Tish Blakey is our Senior Director of Talent Management at Topgolf. In this role, she oversees recruitment, associate development, and diversity and inclusion. She came to Topgolf as a Director of Operations and became a National Director of Operations quickly. We discussed the challenges that she faced both personally and professionally in the past two years, and we talked through what diversity and inclusion really means in an organization. What is your, the short bio, where you live, where you grew up, what yeah. your work history is? Yeah, so I was, I'm originally from D.C. I grew up in Virginia, so I'm a DMV girl. Went to college in Baltimore, HBCU. Shout out Morgan State Bears. Uh, so spent a lot of my time um, just working in that area in hospitality. Started at Chick-fil-A. Woo! At Chick-fil-A. 16, first job. My pleasure. Yes. And, <laughs> and decided that I wanted to do, like, full service. And so I switched um, to restaurants and loved it. I feel like I'm a hospitalitarian. I bleed it. And so I decided to change my major in college to hospitality management. And my career just took off from there. How did you get from Chick-fil-A to joining the Topgolf family? So I went to school for hospitality management. It's restaurants or hotels. Most people are kind of going for hotels, but restaurants were just something I had always uh, loved. And so I started working at TGI Fridays. Back then, TGI Fridays was the premier casual dining restaurant. And it's it's where my love for training and development came from. Well, that menu is no joke. And I had a number of friends that had the opportunity to work at Fridays when it was like it, the Mm -hmm. spot. And... The training was impeccable, mm-hmm. and it had to be because the expectations were high. Oh, yeah. So that, that again, I mean, you talk about a company that was going to invest in you from at every stage of your journey that was that kind of company. And I was there for 13 years. Um, started out as a hostess, and I remember going in for my interview and when they said, well, what do you want to do or where would you like to end up? And I just said, hey, I'm going to take your job. That ended up, you know, coming true and beyond. So I went from being a hostess. And when I left the organization, I was a director of operations. Yes. <laughs> you know, also, I, the fact that you had the confidence in yourself before you even had the job to say, I'm going to take your job. I had a vision for where I wanted to be. Right. And you know, I was like, I'm going to say it out loud. TGI Fridays for me just has so many lessons. So the the passion for training and development, that's also where I learned the power of having a sponsor versus a mentor. How do you get a sponsor? You know, I think a lot of it is about how you build your personal equity because your sponsor a lot of times is that person that can speak for you when you're not in the room. Yeah. You know, and so for me, as my voice was quieted in some ways a little bit over the years, I still wasn't advocating for myself at that point in their career because I was oftentimes the youngest, uh, the, the only, only African-American, only African-American female, because um, I became a general manager. I think I was like 26. And so, you know, I remember even along that journey, there was an opportunity Um, I was an AGM at the time. There was a GM opportunity that was posted, um, and they would send out the posting to, like, everyone. Um, I had already been deemed ready, but I didn't apply for it. Why? People were saying I was ready, but no one had really, like, tapped me, right? I was like, oh, I'll just wait. 
And so they went through all the interviews for the position and they kept saying like, we, we don't have the right person. This isn't the right person. And, um, my sponsor in the room said, well, what about Tish? And apparently according to the story, there started this argument where someone in the room says, well, what about her? Right. She, she isn't here. She didn't apply. You know, why, why are we even talking about her? Which is fair, right? Because again, not using your voice can sometimes work against you, right? And I would have stayed a, a AGM, but my sponsor kept going. Good. Have <laughs> and, we created a space where a person that identifies as the only yeah. feels like they have the permission to take the next step? Yeah. And the loudest voice against me in the room was a male, and my sponsor was a female. And she spoke about the challenges that sometimes females have in advocating. So not only was she talking about me and what may have prevented me from applying, but she was also just talking through a lens of what the company needed to have an awareness of. And so um, after that conversation, um, I got a visit like the next week and it gave me the opportunity to be a general manager. And look, again, I, I was fortunate and yes, I had done the work, but you're not always going to have these situations where you can just not use your voice and yet the outcome is still going to work in your favor, right? Like, and that's why now it's so important for me to do that because not only did it happen there, it also happened here, right? Right. There was when the NDO opportunity um, came, I didn't apply. I remember Gary Myers, who was my NDO at the time, coming to me and saying, I support you. And I'm, you know, and I went home and I'm going, I haven't been here as long. There are other people that deserve it more than me. There are, and I convinced myself not to apply. And again, if, if other people had not advocated and truly shined that mirror on me to go, Tish, stop thinking about all the things that you tell yourself that says that you can't do. I want you to see yourself the way I see you. Because that's truly what people who are advocates and people who are sponsors do, right? They remind you and others of who you truly are, your full self, when you are denying those parts of you. Mm -hmm. It yeah. seems like what you're doing in your current position is establishing that for the entire organization. Yeah. Right? Like we have a culture of tapping people or giving them the permission until it is the norm, Yeah, tapping people that might feel like they don't have a place or an opportunity or they don't fit or they're not ready to say, see yourself the way I see you. Yeah. And you have the permission to apply for this job. Oh yeah. So it's like TGI Fridays, I then spend, you know, all that time there and continue to grow building equity until I just got to a point where I started to ask myself, Am I continuing to excel because I've been here so long and I know everything and I have worked all these different positions? If I was in another brand and I didn't have all of those things, would I be as successful? I went from there to um, Bonefish Grill where I was there for five years and I came into that organization as a regional. And, you know, had some great times but also made some mistakes and did not advocate for myself. I, I ended up in a situation where just myself and a leader did not 
see eye to eye and I did not speak up and I just continued to go through that journey. Of course, learning. I remember reaching out to someone at the time when I was struggling the most and they said, Tish, you're going to have to wake up every morning, go to the mirror and say, despite whatever's happening around me, I am a great leader. Wow. And he said, so just do that every day because anyone would be lucky to have you. Um, and what you bring for yourself and others, he's like, is, is not duplicated. He's like, you have that thing. And so I just start, so I started to kind of look around and um, had a couple people kind of say, hey, you know, if you come here, you know, we, you can work with me again. And I didn't want to move at first. Um, and Top Golf really came my way because uh, Jim Strong, who's the director of operations of Scottsdale, we had worked together at TGI Fridays. And so I remember just reaching out to my network and just saying, hey, I think I'm ready to make a move. And although I had already made one move, that move was different from this move. This move is a move that I was going, okay, let me start to advocate for myself a little bit. And I remember Jim saying, you have got to come to Top Golf. You've got to look at Top Golf. This is you. Like you, like you would be great here. It aligns with the things that you value. And to me, I'm going, okay, that's the best. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, that's the best thing ever, right? Like forget all these other brands where it's just like, you know, you should just come work here. But the way he talked about it aligning with um, who I am just sealed it for me. And I started the long, long process um, but eventually became a member of Top Golf. So you came to Top Golf as a director of operations, and you talk a little bit about Gary Myers tapping you on the shoulder for the NDO National Director of Operations role, and how you moved into that role. It wasn't too long, maybe a year and a half, that you were in the NDO role. That 2020 came around, and 2020, as we all know was challenging in so many ways, especially for us in the restaurant business. But you had a particularly difficult 2020. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Prior to the pandemic, I had like at the start of the year, I was sitting here at the office and my legs started hurting. And I was just like, what is going on? And it just kept throbbing. And I remember looking over at Carrie and just like, something is going on. I mean, I was on a DO call, my leg is throbbing, and I'm just like, something's not right. And I thought maybe I was just tired. And so finally, right, because this is often what happens, you're gonna push through it, right? You're like, oh, I'm fine. I went from meeting to meeting. By the afternoon, I'm limping up and down the stairs, 11th to 12th floor, but I still didn't leave because I had to be here. And so I'm still going, something's not right. And finally, I get pushed to go to the emergency room where by the time, well, I went to like a patient first, took a while. And at this point, I'm now having to take off my shoes. I'm in like snakeskin boots. This was a great day at the <laughs> office. And I am like, okay, no boots, 
I am in barefoot. Like, what is going on? Only to discover that I had a blood clot in my leg. So they had kind of said, hey, you need to go to the emergency room right now. And so that kind of started this piece where, so that was in like January 2020. March 2020, pandemic happens or starts. And no one knows yet why I had the blood clot. And of course, you can't get to the doctor. Right. So I'm on blood thinners, just taking them every day and trying to get in to see a doctor at some point. And so around April, May, I was able to get in to see a hematologist. And I think that, you know, throughout this time, there were so many other things to worry about. Right. Like we had closed down. I was so worried about everyone else that I had put my health on the back burner. I the blood thinners just became a part of my day. At that point, there's no physical pain, right? So it's no longer an issue until I get a call where they're like, hey, you got to come in. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I got to revisit that. And so I go get some testing done and they identify something in my blood where they say, OK, we got to take a, another look. And I'm like, OK. Like, how long is this going to take? I have a meeting in two hours. Facts. <laughs> yeah. Big yeah. facts, right? Like, I got stuff to do, <laughs> yeah. you know? And so I'm figuring it out. I start going to the doctor, and they're like, we don't know what it is, but, you know, has anyone ever said that you might have an autoimmune disease? And, I mean, it was said, like, real casual-like, and I'm going, okay. Has uh, anybody ever told you you look like Tyra Banks? Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure if someone has said that, I probably would have started off with that, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, and he's like, okay, we got to do more testing. And the testing turned into, okay, we have to do a bone marrow biopsy. Whoa. Yeah. And at this point, we're now at the middle of the summer. So think back, middle of the summer. I mean, Top Golf is crazy mm-hmm. right we have reopened uh-huh. I'm now traveling so there's in the back of my mind there's this piece around okay blood you get blood class from traveling right like that's that's it that that's all that this really is this was also when I started to think through you know when do I go back right to the east coast when when do I go back so I'm dealing with just being by myself in the pandemic so probably that was a little bit more top of mind for me than my health and so throughout the summer just still continuing to work right helping to get venues reopened which was so awesome and traveling I'm traveling back and forth to Atlanta which were the venues that it kind of opened for me earlier than others and then dealing with really some changes in my family, right? So the pandemic started to really impact my family and my community. And what was interesting is it was impacting me a lot differently, it seemed, than everyone else on the team. There were so many people who were like, I don't even know anyone who has COVID. Meanwhile, for me, I was losing members of my family. Humming in the background, right, is that I went to the doctor. I had these tests. So now I'm making the move to Atlanta. And I remember the day that I was going to look at this apartment. The apartment was fresh, just as a FYI. (laughs) Um, And I have now walked around this apartment complex. I'm like, oh, we got a rooftop pool. Like, this is about to be real dope here. And then I'm like, oh, crap, I got a doctor's appointment. 
Oh, yeah, I have to go get my bone marrow tested. Yeah, Not- so the bone <laughs> marrow had already happened. So this call is now to give me results. Okay. And so um, get the call from the doctor. And I remember going to the lead, like, can I just go in the other room? Right? Like, I'll just, I'll just take It'll this It'll be call. quick. It's no big deal. Yeah, it's, it's no big deal. And he proceeds to tell me that my test results came back and I have something called smoldering myeloma. Instantly, you know, I'm a Googler. Oh, yes. If I, if I don't yes. know, I'm like, okay, your tone doesn't sound good. And he's like, yeah, you just, you know, you'll just be able to go to the doctor and, you know, we'll go from there. And I'm like, myeloma, that, that sounds familiar, but I've never heard of smoldering. And so I'm starting to Google and I see multiple myeloma, uh, which is a form of blood cancer. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay. And let's just say my hematologist did not have the best bedside manner. So he pretty much just dropped that in my lap. And so I just took that and kept it moving. Right? I, I kept it moving. I went back in to the leasing office to finish, you know, leasing my dope apartment <laughs> and put it to the side. And then later on that night, I'm like, hold on, you know, you're recapping your day. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I had that call earlier. And so I start to Google. So now I am going down this rabbit hole. So now the Googling is taking me to. Am I going to die? Because people in my family who had cancer or friends of mine with family members with cancer they died. That's what people with cancer do. So that starts. And this is summer of 2020, right? And so you also have uh, the George Floyd situation that is happening. And so the conversations that are swirling around me and my community and my family are just full of so many different things. And I just remember being like, okay, I have to like kind of put this to the side. Like, I, I don't know if I can deal with this right now. And like I said, my hematologist just didn't have the best bedside manner. I can't believe that the hematologist would just send you off into the world yeah. to Google your cancer diagnosis. Yeah, it's crazy, right? And so that's why it's so important to advocate for yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's so important. And so... I started to think through who had been an advocate for me. And I had been going to a general practitioner here, a female doctor, and I called her or sent her like a message. You were able to text message, so to speak. And I called her and I said, hey, I just got the diagnosis from the hematologist and I need to talk to you. And she responds back like, of course. And we make an appointment for the next week. So the next week, I'm traveling again. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. I'm back in the venue. Um, she sets the appointment time. And I have one-on-ones that day. I've, I think I have participated in a pre-shift. <laughs> like, my, my day is going normally. And then she calls me. And I'll never forget her first words to me were, I'm so sorry. Oh, gosh. 
That's not what you want to hear. Yeah. And I think that's when it hit me that this was serious and I was not going to be able to just push it to the side. Now, at this point, I had kind of messaged a couple people like my tribe and my mom. And so they knew what was happening, but I had pretty much communicated that I was not in a space to talk about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so thankfully they were respecting that. And so I really wasn't having to talk about it. And so when she said those words, I'm like, man, this is about to have a bigger impact than I thought. And so she starts to talk and she basically says, well, let me start from the beginning. And she starts to walk me through what the diagnosis of smoldering myeloma is. And then I think she starts to kind of just say that you don't have cancer yet. What a heavy three-letter word. Mm -hmm. Yet. And she said, you know, you are at a time um, in this diagnosis where you can watch and wait. Where you basically get to spend the next couple of years, maybe longer than that, watching your numbers, um, your test results, and waiting to see if those numbers move in a way that then moves you to full-blown multiple myeloma. Just not knowing the, the rest of this story, but knowing yeah. you and seeing your work ethic, I can't imagine you have ever sat back and watched anything yeah. in a passive manner your entire life. I imagine just receiving that as an option would feel foreign. It was, and I think it was... It was not only form, but you almost feel like your your body is like attacking you, right? Like betraying you, betraying you. And my faith is such a big part of who I am. And so I'm also sitting there as a woman of God saying, "Okay, right, like troubles are going to come. Things are going to happen, but that doesn't mean that it's going to defeat me. Right. And so, you know, you're, those are the things you're taught. That's the self-talk right? that you're walking the, through. Those are, you know, I'm a church girl, right? Like I was three, four, five days a week, hours on end. So those are the things that you are taught to always tell yourself. Trouble don't last always. Joy will come in the morning, right? Rep weapons will form, but they won't prosper. And so I'm telling myself that, but at the same time, I'm going, what is going on? Right. Because this weapon is forming and she's telling me. There's, it could prosper. That it could prosper, that, that, that it could take, me out right and so she continues to talk and at this point I'm just like okay I don't e I don't even know if I continue to listen at that point right I think the yet had already started to take me to a space and I think at that point I just I mean I'm literally in Nashville in the old marketing office <laughs> on this call 
So you're in a closet. Yeah. And I'm just like, okay, so one, I got to get through this conversation because I got to go back to work. I got, I, I definitely have a one-on-one after this at some point. So, okay, Tish, you got to pull it together, figure this out, and we'll deal with it later. And she says something that for me just validated the instinct to call her is when she said, listen, I know that this is probably overwhelming. I know that you probably aren't even truly registering everything that I'm saying. So let me advocate for you. Mm. And I'm like, okay. And she says, let me do some research. Let me call around. And she said, you said that you're moving back to Atlanta, right? And I said, yeah, I move you know, in a couple weeks. And she said, I think that that is the best decision that could have been made because there is a myeloma specialist at the Winship Cancer Center at Emory who is one of the foremost experts. He's the head of that program. And I want you to start going there. I went through the rest of the day I hung out at the venue. I, I literally, when I closed the door to the closet, right, our office, Tyler, it isn't really a closet. Um, <laughs> when I closed the door, I closed the door on that situation. I put on my game face and I got back to work. Right. Well, I just envisioned when you were saying that you were having this conversation in that space, that you opened the door, walked out, probably saw an associate or a mm-hmm. guest, and I was just about to snap my fingers, but you can't see me. So um, <laughs> just in a snap of a finger, you're, that's in a box now. I have a different role to play in this moment. Yeah. And you're, hi, welcome. How, how are you? Like immediately yeah. pouring yourself back out to whomever you're interacting with. Yeah, that's what I've been doing all summer. I don't think anyone really knew what was going on. I think that when we started as a brand to take a look at ourselves through how we focus on inclusion and unconscious bias, I think that it also for me made me have to confront a lot of things and deal with a lot of things. And so in the midst of these losses, I also found myself having to put on the face, right, for not only myself, but what I also felt was the brand, right? I was the only African-American on my team. Um, At the time, I was, you know, being asked a lot of questions. People didn't know what to do with what was happening, right? And so more often than not, you're thinking, well, the best way that I can advocate or the best way that I can show up is to check on my black friends, right? And to make sure, and I don't mean that in, in a negative way, no, yeah. right? It, a lot of people just didn't know what to do. And so in the midst of all of that and everything that I was dealing with personally, I was also having to deal with this. And I, I remember the day that I broke, I guess around the team, I had gotten quiet, which is which not, is not you're right. <laughs> And I guess, again, someone else, right? The God wink, the, the advocate 
whatever you want to call them, said to Jen, the CEO of the company, is everything okay with Tish? She's not talking. And so I remember Jen calling me and asking me if I was okay. And your natural response, right? Is to say, yeah. Yeah, I'm great. Oh, I'm great. Everything's good. When the, good. When the, every, when the COO of the company calls, yeah. I'm fine. Everything's great. I'm good. Everything's fine, right? It's not, it's not her burden. It's not her job. It's not her responsibility. And I just remember saying no. And I think in that moment, like everything came crashing down. In that moment, having to say to myself, Tish, it's okay to not be okay, right? And not because I was tallying all the things that I was going through against what everyone else was going through. And listen, shout out to Jen because I let her have it. I mean, she sat on that phone and she listened to every rant, every issue that I had, every injustice, and she took it. And of course, you know, behind that, there's also, uh, I'm talking to the CEO of the company and I'm talking about the lack of diversity in our brand. And I'm talking about, you know, I remember one phrase kind of stands out to me as I remember saying to her, like, it is not my fault. I'm the only one. I think about that and feel that every single day still, how unfair yeah. it was that seemingly overnight, yeah. you have a responsibility to represent an entire group of people that yeah. all have their own unique personality types and I mean you're one one part of you it identifies with the community you have so many other parts and also now you have to take on every persona of an entire community and represent it to a business I mean I just can't even imagine the weight of that yeah because I was getting messages on LinkedIn Again, all with great intentions. Right. Right. And so many of my friends who were in corporate America, a lot of our conversations were about at that time just carrying this load. But remember, I'm also carrying this other load. Right. And so for me, it was just like, I don't know, it became too much. And you're not supposed to say that. Right. Like you you're not supposed to say that you talk about this responsibility, but that is drilled in you. And I remember sharing that when I taught some of the unconscious bias is that when you're the only one, yeah, you're taught to to act a certain way, to talk to talk a certain way, because if you don't, you are somehow closing the door for others. And so there's always been a responsibility right? To reach behind you, a responsibility to make sure that you are performing, to make sure that you're doing all the right things so that other people have the chance. And in that, that day, in that moment, I was just tired. You know, I, you know, and I'm just like, it's just not my fault, Jen. It's, it's not my fault. 
and I and I remember I kept stopping and going, I get it. I have a responsibility. I understand that, but it is not my fault. I need people to stop trying to get me to help shape everything that's going on. I can't do it right now. On top of my job. Because no one knew about the health thing at that point. So when I'm having this conversation with Jen, normally you're supposed to feel like this fear, right? But I think I was just so at my breaking point. And I just remember Jen, I think I just ran out of steam, right? I think I just, at some point I ran out of words and I'm just crying on the phone. And Jen just let me cry. And then she said, Tish, I want you to take some time off. I think probably when I actually said, okay, it was, it was definitely reluctantly. Right. Um, until it got to the point where I was within that time off and I had the opportunity to just sit and just reset and start to think about what my next steps of this transition were going to be. And I think that, you know, after that talk with Jen and after everything was kind of happening, right, you know, you kind of go at that point, I need my mom. You know, my mom has a way of not really just interfering. She guides, right? She, she doesn't make decisions for me, but she always lets me know that she's there. She's also my spiritual mentor. It's like she's who taught me to believe in God, to believe in myself. And she's an example for me of how to just get through things and how to kind of reach into your arsenal of faith when it's necessary. And I think I started to go, okay, I need her. But right now I think she also is not understanding what's happening with me and how can she guide me? How can she help me? And so I remember calling her and I was taking a lift And I remember getting in the lift and I called her and the first words I said to her was, mom, am I going to die? And she stopped and she said, no, my daughter, you will not die. And, you know, it's like in that moment, you almost feel like she's like waving this magical wand. And she just said, I was waiting for you to call me. And so that conversation with my mom really just kind of set me at a space to where it was just like, okay, I, I have to get out of my head I have to start to watch and wait you know fast forward and I I started to have doctor's appointments so now I'm in Atlanta and this I mean the transition for me at that time again right God's plan your journey however you want to describe it that started for me this space or transition to tap into my full self and to ensure that in my care for others, I was caring for me. I mean, I remember walking out of 
the doctor's office and um, Tim had waited outside for hours. Your husband? My now husband. Now husband. He had, I mean, I had to be there. I was there for a long time, definitely way longer than expected because I had blood work and all that stuff. And I remember he called and he's like, I'm in the parking lot. And I'm just like, hold on, I've been here since like seven o'clock this morning. This is now like 12 or one. And, you know, you you had to kind of get to you have to get to this point where you're like, you can't just allow everyone else to show up for you. Like you have to show up for yourself. Last quarter of 2020, I did a lot of hiding. Right. Like I was going to doctor's appointments. I was getting transfusions. I was I mean, I was on conference calls, possibly with some of you, you know, sitting in the basement of a hospital surrounded by um, patients getting chemotherapy and things like that. And my camera was just off and I would just sit with my laptop. I would take all the calls and. If I knew I was going to be out of there by 12, 1 o'clock, I would go to a venue after. It just it It's just a, a gigantic reminder that you really never know yeah. what people are going through. And just a PSA for applying compassion mm-hmm. and empathy. Yeah. So now, you know, it's, it's a part of my journey. And, you know, I'm still watching and waiting. And, you know, every three months. I go through it again because every three months is when I have to get new testing and I have to um, find out how my numbers are doing. And so I wish I could sit here and say that that anxiety or that guilt or those things are like completely gone. They aren't. I fight them every single time. But I think that. How do you fight them? Through the people with the people that are on my journey. Like I and I say it out loud right so my last appointment um I was struggling I called my husband from the basement of the hospital and I said I am struggling today I said I am struggling today I want my numbers to be good I want them to tell me that I have time I said I'm I'm tired And you think about the people who've gone through so much more than I have, right? And, but I was just, that day I was like, I'm tired. I'm tired of the watching and waiting. I'm tired of having to walk into this building. I'm tired. And he just talked me through it and he said, it's it's okay to be tired. It's okay to have those feelings, just don't stay there. Just don't stay in that space. You know, when you're ready, you get up, you go upstairs, you go hear the results, and then we get through it. You know, and thankfully, my last um, set of results, my watch and wait will extend from three months to six months. And so now I get to have... You know, every six months I go instead of three, which was really welcome news. But here's the thing, whether the news was good or bad, it it is all a part of my journey. Oh, I love that. It sounds like you had such a huge amount of growth on the personal side. 
I want to shift gears back to the professional side. This whole time, as you're going through all of this stuff in your personal life, you were still an NDO at Topgolf. And at this point, we know you gave Jen some feedback about the diversity at Topgolf. And we know that you've since moved into the senior director of talent management role, which seems like that really has a heavy focus on diversity and inclusion. Can you talk about how you transitioned to that role and what your short-term goals are? In my career, I had watched people be in that position. And to be honest, I had a negative perception of it a little bit because people that I had watched just either within the DNI space were often the first people to be let go when there were or changes, right. right? Or they were often siloed. And I also had a little bit of a, you know, in that same respect where I was going, you know, I'm not, it's not my fault. I'm not, you know, I'm the only one. There was also a thought of, okay, don't tap me right, to do this work because I'm a black female. And I think what was different for me here with the brand is that our lens was that the work doesn't fall on one person. Right. For me, I was going, okay, how do I start to think through this lens of equity for others and and do more? But also, how do I keep this focus on how people are developed, how people ultimately get to a brand and are able to grow their full selves, right? And really have a path from A to B. And for me, that was something that wasn't necessarily spelled out here in the way that it had been in some of my um, previous jobs. And so it was, how do I combine the two? Not, Not just for me, but I want to put myself in a position where no one feels the way I felt that day, where I'm the only one. There's this responsibility on me um, where everyone you only have me to go to to ask all these questions. I'm like, that's just not a good space. And I want to not only create that space for others, I want to help to create this roadmap. I want to help to grow our culture. It sounds to me like you have taken what that sponsor said in that room and said, you don't, here's what I need you to understand about why she might not have applied as an organization, as an, as a society, as a culture we have to approach different people in a different way because they have not all grown up or been empowered in the same way. And they are strong and smart and successful and have a lot to give the business. So if we are not thinking about it in this way, we are leaving resources on the table and impact on the table and revenue on the table. Yeah, And it sounds to me like you have taken that learning and created a position that will help our organization to really, really, really understand the barriers for different groups within our organization and those that are not yet in our organization, because it will make us better. It will create more impact, which will create more revenue 
And that's a really beautiful journey and the way and a way to pay it forward of that sponsor that advocated for you to create an entire position to do that for thousands and thousands of people. So I read something the other day that really resonated with me and I saw it kind of reposted a couple weeks ago. And it said that diversity is when everyone is invited to the dance. Right. And you think about that. We all go to the same high school. We're all invited to the dance. You're not going to leave anyone out. Right. We no one's done anything. Everyone gets an invitation. Everyone gets an invitation. But an inclusion is when inclusion is when everyone is up and dancing. Right. And I think that that's so important. Right. Because you have people that aren't dancing because they're in their own head. I can't dance. No one ever taught me how to dance. I'm going to be dancing by myself. I'm going to be dancing too big. I'm going to be dancing too much, right? So when you think about being at those high school dances, everybody wasn't up and dancing. Everybody was invited, but everybody was up, was not up and dancing for whatever those reasons are. And so our responsibility is to ensure that everyone is up and dancing and to figure out why they may not be. It's to not just let the person sit there and not enjoy the dance and not take part, but ask questions, figure out about them as, as an individual, as a group, because there was a group that was not dancing. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Right? There were several groups for several different reasons. And so how do we figure out why they aren't dancing and create an environment where everyone knows that you can dance? And that does not mean you get and you forcibly pull everyone up to dance that's not what that means but you create a space where everyone is up and dancing and sometimes that will mean you will need to pull and that you will need to have the right conversations but it's not enough for us to just invite everybody to the dance that is no longer the expectation so I experienced this with a leader that's recently come into our business we were on a call and everyone on the call was male, except for me. And we were talking about this idea and the strategy and the group of people that were on the call really just needed this leader to say, yes, that's a good idea. Yes, you have my stamp of approval, move forward. And so they had three or four really like agenda items, like this part of the strategy, yes, done, check, let's move on to the next. And the first time, that the group of males that were on the call. And it also, the dynamic was different because the leader and I were both virtual Mm. and the rest of the team was in person in a conference room all together. And it was really their project. And I was there as part of a a support of the project. And the team inside the room, all male would say to the male leader, this is the part, do you agree with this strategy? Yes, check, done. Like they wanted to move through the conversation, right? Because they had to get through the agenda to Mm -hmm. make sure that they could do their job. And the first time that before they moved forward, the leader stopped the meeting and said, Tiffany. So I was invited to the meeting. Yeah. But he stopped and he said, Tiffany, what do you think about that? And so I gave my feedback. Okay. Move on to the next one. And they ask again, leader. What do you think of this? And again, almost a little more forcibly, he said, we've heard everyone's voice except for Tiffany's. 
And then the third time, the team in the room went, okay, we've got it now. Yeah. Everyone gets to have a voice and then we make a decision. That's how this leader rolls. And I had never seen intentional inclusion in action like that. Yeah. And I was like, that is the difference. Yeah. I love that story because it's the epitome of what we just talked about, right? Like he, he saw you, he saw you grooving. He knew you wanted to get in. And at some point you have to go to the perimeter of the dance floor and go, Hey, dance with me. And, and ultimately if we all did that, you know what happens at the dance when no one's dancing on the floor and the first person goes and grabs someone and someone else goes and, and now, now everyone is up and dancing and now it's a party and that's what we want. Right. We need it to be a party and we need people like the person you mentioned to go and grab someone to dance so that everyone else in the room says, well, let me also grab someone's hand and yeah. ask them to dance and, and bring them. And now it's a party. And to your point earlier, now that party is a company that is growing, that is diverse, that is inclusive, that is successful in ways that other companies will not be. And it's not, it won't just be about revenue. It will be about that feeling that everyone has when you look around and everyone is dancing. Tish shares with us that it is okay to not be okay. That we have to show up for ourselves just as much as other people are showing up for us. And that diversity inclusion happens when we pull some along on the dance floor and speak up for them when they can't or won't. 